How you guys doing tonight? Good. I'm doing good also. I am uh, struggling with this series already, and we haven't even started it, it yet. Here's how I'm struggling. Angels and Demons is something that I am very, very passionate about, specifically spiritual warfare. Very, very passionate about that because it is probably one of the most misunderstood subjects in all of Christianity. There's probably not many other subjects that create such divisiveness and such um, just confusion in general. And confusion and divisiveness are in themselves weapons that the enemy can use against us. So the reason I'm passionate about this subject is that I want to eliminate that confusion. I want to eliminate those arguments that we have with one another as best I can and make sure that we're all on the same page as we march forward together as one body of Christ to do battle in the spiritual realms. Now, if that sounds good to you, then you're in the right place. Another thing I want to mention, though, is that the biggest difficulty that I had writing this was not lack of insight, not lack of material, not lack of the Holy Spirit telling me things. It was trying to pare it down so I had a reasonable expectation of finishing a message in one evening. I'm talking not a whole series, but a specific message. Every time that I revisited my notes to try and edit them down and say, well, I won't talk about that today, I won't talk about that today, it got longer. So at some point I had to say, i got to stop revisiting it and just focus on what the Lord has already given me. And so that's where we are. But I want to tell you, just warn you up front, there is a lot here. And I'm going to be covering a lot of stuff, but don't worry. Because every subject that I talk about tonight, I will be covering in depth in a later message. Okay, so tonight's kind of the introduction, sort of laying the groundwork. And I'll go into each one of these topics and more as we go throughout the series, okay? So that being said, I kind of want to caution you a little bit to hear as many of these messages as you can. Now, this isn't done for self-serving reasons, like I just want you to hear them all. It's that lack of knowledge, that lack of understanding in the spiritual realm that causes these problems. And if we just hear a little bit, what will happen is it will take away one or two little tidbits that really interest us and we'll base our theology on spiritual warfare on that. Okay, just like the Bible needs to be seen in its entirety in order to understand the fullness of it, we need to see spiritual warfare in its entirety to understand all the ramifications that go along with it. Does that make sense? So if you miss a message here, I get that. We do podcast everything, Google Play and iTunes. You can get them there. You can go to our website and link directly through there so you don't even have to worry about Google Play and iTunes. It's all on there. But uh, let's jump in because I've got, I've got plenty of stuff to cover in the time that we have. So let's kick in. I want to ask a question first. Very first thing, a question. When I say spiritual warfare, or more accurately, angels and demons, because that's the main heading of this, what comes to mind? So what, are, what that thing is that just popped into your head when I said angels and demons? What's that? Good versus bad. Okay. Kind of the one sitting on one shoulder and one sitting on the other shoulder. 
both whispering to you, right? Not theologically, not a bad representation of what happens, actually. But what about this? What about the happy devil? He's giving the little horns there. The happy devil and the cheerful angel. They look like they're on their way to a rave or something. They're not really, um, doesn't look scary. And in reality, angels and demons and spiritual warfare shouldn't be scary. Now, this is where the enemy gets in there a lot, and a lot of people just say, I don't even want to hear about it. I'll just, it's enough for me to know it exists and fine. I don't even want to know any more about it because that stuff's scary to me. If it's scary to you, it's primarily because you don't understand your authority over the spiritual realm given to you by Jesus Christ. Now, the other reason it could be scary is if you don't know Jesus. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Then you're kind of out there on your own, trying to do battle in a realm that you have no understanding of. And you're destined to lose that battle if you don't understand it. It's through the Holy Spirit in us that these things are revealed to us. So that neither one of those images is an accurate representation of what an angel or a demon looks like. All right? We're going to go into that a little bit. So biblically, here's just a couple highlights on the description of angels and demons. Number one, they are created beings. Okay? God created them. Okay? God himself always has been. He wasn't created. He always was. Angels and demons were created, and they were created by God for a specific purpose or multiple purposes here on the earth. There are definitive ranks of angels and demons. Definitive ranks. There's a hierarchy within their ranks, just like there would be with any, with any army. They are not physical beings. Okay, They're not, they're not flesh. They are all they are all spirit, spirit beings that can change their appearance based on what God wills and what God wants for that moment. And we'll go into that in another message, but we see all the times where angels have appeared as human. And then we have the biblical description of what angels look like. We're going to get into that, but first, uh, just a couple facts, fun facts, if you will, about angels and demons. Okay, angels were created to minister to God. Okay, they were created to minister to man as messengers. They were created to minister to man as guardians. Okay, we'll talk about it when we get to that section in another message. There's scripture that backs all these up. We'll talk about it. And then also to minister to the needs, the very basic needs of believers. Now demons, on the other hand, demons, their mission is to hinder God's people. It's to do everything they can to come against God's plan for you. That's job one for demons. They're one-third, actually, of all created angels. Okay, demons are one-third. Scripture says one-third left with Lucifer. They are otherwise known as unclean spirits. Okay, they can lie. They can cheat. They can steal. There's not a lot more they can do. Again, we'll go into that. They're basically liars. They want to whisper, just like the image of the devil sitting on your shoulder. They want to whisper in your ear. And the worst thing we can do is listen to that whisper and put weight behind it. Listen to that whisper from a demon and believe it. Take it on as our own identity because then we'll do his work for him. 
We'll separate ourselves from the kingdom of God. They don't even have to do anything anymore. But again, we'll get into that a little bit more later. Now, there are two primary kinds of angels. There's seraphs or seraphim, and Scripture describes them like this. I'll, do, I'll just read these to you. Now, just picture in your head. This is what a seraphim angel looks like. This is from Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Okay, that's just a basic description of what, of what a seraphim looks like. Now, cherubs or cherubim are a little bit different. Okay, a slightly different purpose, and they look a little bit different. This is from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Listen to this and try and picture this in your mind. I was going to put a picture up there, but it's almost impossible to find something that really encompasses this. All right, within it, there were, three, there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. Who's got a really accurate picture of what that is? <laughs> now you know why I couldn't find an image that kind of fit that. It's, that's a lot. That's a lot going on. So, with that image in your mind, or at least that approximation of an image in your mind, demons now, we talk about angels and demons, really, they're all angels. Demons are the angels who chose to follow Lucifer, chose to follow Satan. They're the same being, so they look virtually the same, okay? Only some went with Lucifer. Now, this is an, a... Uh, Scripture from Ezekiel, again, this is chapter 28, verses 14 to 16, that talks about, and I'll just read this one to you also. We'll get some up on the screen here in a minute, but it's talking about a description of Satan. And he says, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. That is a description of the fall of Satan. There's really only a couple passages in Scripture that really describe what happens here, and you need to infer going back and forth from Revelation and different other books to really see the fullness of the picture that happened. But what tells us this, what about Satan that we need to know here is that it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. 
Now, what that refers to is the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, we have an image here of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you go back and you read the description very carefully of how the Ark of the Covenant was built and what it went on, those two figures up on top, you can't see them well, but those are cherubs. And their job, or their images of cherubs, their job was to cover and to protect the ark. It was a, it was a, um, a place of honor for an angel, for a cherub. So this is saying that Satan was a cherub. Satan was originally made blameless and perfect, one of the highest of all the angels. And his very job was to protect the ark, which was a symbolic place where God lived. So Satan was, was very high honor, and then, and then sin was found in him. And again, another message for another day when we go in depth into that, but that's essentially what happened. So the question that you might ask yourself is, why does this matter to me? Okay, it's interesting for sure. Why does this matter to me? You might be saying to yourself, didn't Jesus conquer Satan? Didn't Jesus win that battle once and for all? Why is it important really at all that we know about this stuff other than just it's, it's interesting? It is important to know that, yes, on the cross, Christ won the war once and for all. However, Satan has not surrendered yet. And that does happen, but he hasn't done it yet. So although we know, and in God's foreknowledge, he knows what's going to happen, and we can rest assured that Satan loses this battle, he has not surrendered yet. And so his actions and his, and his schemes are still very much alive on the earth today. Now, another question that people ask a lot is, wasn't Satan, doesn't the Bible say, and I hear this from time to time, wasn't Satan given dominion over the earth? How many people have heard that? Satan is given dominion over the earth, which would lead you to believe that the earth belongs to him, okay, and it's only heaven that, that is, is holy and where, where Jesus and God live. It's important to understand that scripture. It's not entirely wrong, but it's wrong enough to where we need to clarify this. And here's what it is. From, uh, this is from John 12. We do have this one on screen. John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is Jesus saying that. In parentheses, Jesus, that's me. Just to, that's Jesus saying that thing. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Now if you, if you just look at that, he's talking about Satan. Jesus himself is calling Satan the ruler of this world. But here's what that means. Here's the depth of that. If we do our exegesis on this, that term, ruler of this world, was a common term, still is, that a Jewish rabbi would use for Satan. That's the term that they used for Satan. That does not mean that he is literally the ruler of this world. See, Jews considered themselves outside and above this world. So he wasn't the ruler of anything having to do with the Jews. He was the ruler in the eyes of the Jews who would have read this and written this. He was the ruler of the Gentiles, which were considered this world. So that's where that comes from. Now, the word, 
the word dominion is not in this scripture, but we talk about Satan having dominion over this earth. That word dominion, if we look at that closer in the Greek, that word dominion is exousia. And it means operating within a designated jurisdiction. Okay, that means Satan has been given a designated area, a designated authority that he can operate within. But how many of you know, if you're given a jurisdiction and you're given an authority, there's somebody higher who's giving that to you. Satan's not in charge. That's the takeaway from this. In fact, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus himself says, now this is the Great Commission scripture, but this is the beginning of it, where he says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ has all authority on heaven and earth, okay? Which means Satan is allowed to do certain things. He's allowed to run wild in certain cases, and we'll get into the whys of that later because that's a whole other question. But he does not have ultimate authority. He can only work within the bounds of what he has been given, okay? So that's important to know. Now, for the followers of Jesus, that is good news, because Jesus himself says this in 1 John 3, 8. Again, talking about this. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's Jesus himself saying this. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. If you think that this is all not about spiritual warfare... That says it right there. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. It doesn't say for this purpose among many others, does it? This purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Church, the Bible is all about spiritual warfare. And we can't afford to not know our enemy. You can't afford to turn a blind eye to the spiritual warfare, to Satan and the things that he and his demons do, and just hope that they'll leave you alone. That's not how this works. Anybody know who Sun Tzu is? Sun Tzu. Sun T-Z-U. He is a general, a Chinese general, who wrote a book, manual, called The Art of War. Now people are going, like, oh, yeah, oh, that's Sun Tzu. I know that Sun Tzu. I thought you were talking about a different Sun Tzu. Um, he is a military strategist, a writer, philosopher, and he wrote this book. And he wrote it about 512 B.C. About 512 B.C., and that's roughly the time uh, that the book of Daniel was written. And Babylon had conquered Jerusalem, and there was all kinds of exile going on. It was bad times for the Jewish people at that point. But that's when Sun Tzu wrote this manual. And he wrote this, still used today, as a, as a manual on how to do war. And he writes this, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So again, written by, he might have been a Buddhist. We don't know exactly what he was, but wisdom is wisdom wherever you find it. 
right? And what he's saying there is what I say all the time is, church, you will lose 100% of the battles you don't know you're in. If you don't realize you're in a battle, you're going to lose it. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That word sober spirit translates differently in the Greek, and essentially it's, it's a term that the shepherds would use to keep each other vigilant, especially in the middle of the night, because that's when lions, that's when hyenas, that's when things would come in and attack the flock. So that's a term there, saying be vigilant because you never know where it's coming from or when it's coming. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. That's our adversary. Everyone is vulnerable, everyone. But this series isn't all just about the scary things. This isn't all just about roaring lions looking to attack you, being devoured, uh, possession, all kinds of things like that that can be scary. And especially as lead pastor, when I'm teaching a series like this, I need to be aware that there are people who may not fully understand the spiritual realm or their authority, and they'll hear this, and it will turn them away. Because we know if we're followers of Christ, we become public enemy on Satan's list. But if you're not, he'll leave you alone. Who wants to sign up for that? Not many. We have to be careful in this, which is why this message is not, it's not about scary things and the boogeyman jumping out to get you and every single bad thing that happens is of the devil. This is not a series about that. This is a series really about victory in Christ. It's about the victory that Jesus Christ died, gave himself to give us. And we have every tool and everything we need to achieve that victory over the forces of darkness. And what this series is about is explaining to you the tools that you have and how to use them. That's what this is about. So now that we know the players, angels, demons, Satan, we kind of know who the players are, what does spiritual warfare itself look like? Anybody have, like, what, what does spiritual warfare look like, like in your daily life? Who, who had spiritual warfare today? Anybody? <coughs> yes. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good, and that's, that's very accurate. The enemy just tries to take you out by ruining your day. Really, it can be that simple. Anything that he can do to distract you from your focus on what God has called you to do in that moment or in that day or in your lifetime, he'll do it. Scripture says the fruit of the Spirit is peace, love, patience, joy, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There might be one other in there. Yes. Anything else that you're feeling 
that is not one of those things is from the devil. Fear, anxiety, any of those things. I'm going to go over those more in a minute. But that's what spiritual warfare in its most basic sense looks like. Let me give you some examples from the Bible, though. I'll read this one. This one's a little long, but this is from Genesis 3, 1 to 6. This is probably the first instance that most of us can think of, right? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The very first, very first instance of spiritual warfare and what was it? What did it all boil down to? Twisting the truth. Not even an outright lie. Twisting the truth. Lies sometimes can be very easy to identify. Oh, that's ridiculous. But the enemy is smart, and he'll take truth. He'll take scripture, and he'll twist it just enough to be deceptive. And in this case, it got Adam and Eve. So, some people debate whether that serpent really was Satan or should we just hate all snakes in general because we have to jump forward, and it's just a sidebar kind of thing, but if we jump forward to Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, I have this, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's a sneak peek of how this ends. But that says, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, that's referring back to this serpent. So we know, we know that that serpent was Satan. Now another example. This one's from Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 6. I'll just read this one to you. Now you have to follow me along here. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. This is as, as Moses is trying to enter the promised land, right? And how many times have we read maybe and heard, like, how fair is that? He goes through all this stuff only to die before he enters. So that, this is where we are. That's a whole nother subject. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Okay, so just remember that. He, Moses was buried there, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Now, you might say to yourself, how is, how is that warfare at all? Here's how that's warfare. Again, we have to jump forward. We jump forward to the book of Jude. Okay, so... Try and keep up with me. Sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. Jude chapter 1 verse 9 says this, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, 
did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Two things to take away from this. First one, Michael the archangel didn't pronounce judgment on the devil, but he said, the Lord will rebuke you. Even Michael the archangel used, used the authority of the Lord for that. But when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, so Michael the archangel, back here when we read about nobody knows where he was buried to this day, Michael was doing battle at that moment with Satan as to where Moses was buried. Why is that important? Anybody have a clue why that fact is important? It's important because what were the Jews prone to doing? Following idols. If Moses had died outside there and they would have buried him, what was the next logical thing the Jews would have done? Build some sort of a temple or a monument and begun worshiping Moses. This was, a, was intentional by Michael to say, no, nobody's going to know where we buried Moses because eyes need to be on Jesus and on their salvation, not on Moses. Just little things we can look for, little trails all throughout the Bible that explain to us that at every single turn, every chapter, every book is about warfare. Is about warfare, good and bad, the spirit and the flesh. So, some modern examples. How about some modern examples? Listen to this. Maybe some of these will resonate with you. Have you ever felt the thrill, kind of a rush, of doing something that you know is wrong? Have you ever fantasized about taking revenge against someone? Have you, I'm going to quit making eye contact with anybody. I'm just going to look down. <laughs> Have you ever felt justified in hating someone? Have you ever felt envy? Have you ever been selfish and said, me first? Have you ever felt jealousy? Have you ever held on to offense? Or to put it another way, do you, people who have hurt you, have you ever made this statement, I'll never let them hurt me again? Have you ever judged someone? Have you ever felt anger towards someone? You ever felt an attraction or a fascination to the occult? And by the occult, I mean witchcraft, uh, Freemasonry, um, tarot, astrology. It's not, it's to read your horoscope, by the way, in the morning and go, oh, it says uh, I should stay inside today. Okay, that's one thing. But to look at it and go, ooh, my horoscope says I should stay inside today, I'm going back to bed. You put credence, you put weight behind that, that's a fascination and that's where problems come in. I'll talk about that here in just a little bit. Have you ever said to yourself, I can't do this? I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm too old. I'm too young to do what God has called me to do. If you've said any of those things or had any of those thoughts or actions today, how about since you walked into church? Then you are experiencing spiritual warfare. That's what it looks like. It's not like the movies. Anybody ever seen the movies, Angels and Demons? It's not about floating beds and spinning heads and things like that. It's not about that. It's as simple as holding on to a fence for somebody that hurt you. 
The flesh is going to tell you, why wouldn't I? Somebody hurt me. Why wouldn't I remember that so that I'm sure not to let them do it again? You're giving the enemy ground. You're giving the enemy a foothold when you do that. You're saying, in essence, if you're a follower of Christ, I know that's wrong, but it feels good and it feels right, so I'm doing it anyway. That's when we give the enemy a foothold. We willingly let the enemy in. I'll try and explain that in brief here. We'll go into that more in another message. Ephesians chapter 4, 26, 27. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. And here's the important part, verse 27. And do not give the devil a foothold. Our anger, in this case it's talking about anger, but any of our sin that we knowingly engage in. When it says don't let the sun go down, it doesn't mean don't have that fleeting thought. It means you've had time to think about it. You've had time to process it, and you're going to hang on to it anyway. That's when we give the enemy a foothold. That's the problem. That's his opening. That word foothold translates in Greece to topos, which is kind of territory or like a topographical map, right? But what it really means, it's a legal term that means to allow access. And that's how this works. Again, I'll go into this further in another message, but when we knowingly hold on to sin, when we knowingly practice that, we are opening a door to a spirit into our lives. And that spirit is not an angel. That spirit is a demon who wants a foothold in your life. He will move into your living room, and he will rearrange your furniture, and he will make himself comfortable. And you won't even know he's there. But you've given him permission to be there by kicking that door open and leaving it open. Now, thankfully, when we go into deliverance, we'll talk about ways that we can shut that door. We can kick him out of our house. We have that authority. But the point is, don't give him the foothold to begin with. That's the easiest way. When I say easiest, that's the first way. But that's a hard way. It's hard to do. Um, Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21 says this. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, listen to this. The results are very clear. Listen to this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't mean to be condemning when I give you that list. That list should not be condemning. If those, any of those things apply to you, and I think they apply to probably all of us at some level at some time or another, it should be a conviction that these things that I'm doing, maybe even knowingly and willingly engaging in these things, I'm giving the enemy a foothold. And if you willingly, knowingly give the enemy a foothold, then what happens is no longer up to you because he now has influence in your life. If any of those things apply to you, you are literally in a fight for your soul. The consequences of losing that fight are great. They're eternal. They are great. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
abundant life. It's not a salvation issue. Let me ask you this question. Can the devil steal your salvation? I heard mostly no's. Any yeses out there? Anybody brave enough to say, yeah? That's a big argument. A lot of very well-respected theologians argue that back and forth, both directions. But let me tell you where I come down on this. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Once you have accepted Jesus, you belong to him. You can't belong to two different masters. You belong to Jesus, and no one, and no one includes you. No one includes that crazy brother-in-law you have who was baptized, grew up in the church, and has rejected Jesus and gotten tattoos and does whatever now, okay? Or fill in the blank with the person you know who we're all at some level, we worry about them. Because I know they knew Jesus at one point, but what happened? Why are they not living the life like that? Why have they even openly rejected that? It's a fullness of life. It's an abundance of life that has been stolen from them. It is not their eternal salvation. Once you belong to Jesus, no one can snatch you out of his hand. That deserves an amen, church. All right. That felt good. Can I get an amen? All right. I'm going to do that more often. That felt good. So how can we possibly win this fight? If we're in this fight, how do we win this fight? We've been given plenty of tools. The first one, though, James 4, 7, submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. That is super straightforward. Resist. Resist comes in any form, up to and including saying, not today, Satan. Not today. It doesn't mean you have to go get a priest and holy water and do this and do that. It doesn't mean that. It means you refuse to partner with him. And then the important part here, though, is submit, therefore, to God. Sometimes we overlook that. Submit yourself and what you think you ought to do to the renewed mind through the Holy Spirit in Jesus because that is submitting yourself to God, and through that you will know exactly what to do and exactly how to fight this battle. That's how that works. God has given us everything that we need to win. So I'm a little bit over, so I'm going to go through this quickly. So bear with me. I want to finish this up. Steps to prepare yourself for battle. Steps to prepare yourself for this battle. Number one, put on your armor every day. There's a passage of Scripture, Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. It's all about the armor of God. Many of us have heard that. If you haven't, go back and read it in its entirety. I'm going to read it full through really fast here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil in that day. And having done everything to stand firm. The 
armor of God, number one. Number two, confess positively about yourself. Speak positive words over yourself. There is power in that. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Speak life over yourself. Speak life over those around you. Don't say, I'm not smart enough. I'm too weak. I can't do this. Don't say those things because the enemy is more than happy to let you live by that fruit. And he will nurture that fruit in your mind. You think you can't? Okay, you can't. And I'm going to remind you of that every chance I get. All things are possible with Christ. That's what we've been promised. Stay in Scripture. Number three, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Second one, Psalm 119, 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. You want to avoid sin? Treasure the word in your heart. Know the word treasure it in your heart. Number four, continuous prayer. Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that we will never understand will guard your heart and your mind if you pray. Pray regularly. Remember, prayer is just talking to God. Invite him in to what is worrying you, what's on your mind, what you have questions about, what you're about to do. If he's a part of your everything, he will guard your hearts. Next one, last one on this list anyway, and there's many more, fellowship with the body. Okay, Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. One of the worst things that I hear is, I don't, really, I don't really do church. I know Jesus, but I don't do, I kind of I do my own thing. Okay, I know Jesus, but I do my own thing. How are you fulfilling this? How are you bearing one another's burdens? How are you lifting up, encouraging one another if you don't come to a place where the body assembles? Church, that's the value in being here. It's not about listening to me teach. Certainly not that. It might be a little bit more hearing some wonderful worship, but mostly, it's about the other people around you. Bearing one another's burdens, lifting up and encouraging and knowing that you are a part of something bigger than just yourself. That's important. Romans chapter 1, verse 12, the last one. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. That's Paul talking to the Romans saying, this is why I even want to come visit you, so that we can encourage one another. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up now, and I'll wrap this up. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that encompasses one of the final points that I want to make. Our focus needs to be on Christ, first and foremost. We need to know our enemy, know your enemy, and we're going to go much more in depth into this, so you will know your enemy very well. But our focus needs to be on Jesus. The enemy is more than happy to let us give credit to him for every single thing that happens in our day, okay? The alarm doesn't go off. 
We pop our eyes open and go, oh, the devil's messing with me. He wants me to have a bad day. Okay, or maybe you forgot to set it last night. Maybe it's just that. Oh, I got a flat tire on the way to church. Okay, maybe the devil's trying to stop you, but maybe somebody just didn't tie down the bucket of nails in the back of their truck. Not everything is an attack from Satan, but what is a problem is that Satan wants to take credit for every bad thing that happens to you. And if we give it to him, he'll be more than happy to take that and just multiply it. That's how he works. C.S. Lewis's quote, by the way, says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which we as a race can fall into about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That's from a book called The Screwtape Letters. If It's not biblically based, but it's a very good representation of that battle between good and evil. So if you've never read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, really interesting read. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. This is a message about victory in Christ. And the last scripture that I want to share with you is just this one. Romans 8, 37 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created being will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. So to wrap up this message, I think there's no better time to, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know Jesus. Because all these things that I talked about, you are fair game if you're not a believer. Could you bring that down a little bit? You're fair game. And the enemy will be after you and you have no defense. Jesus gave himself for you. Those who know him, those who don't, those who want to know him, those who don't want to have anything to do with him. He gave himself for all of you. And the best thing that we can do is to know him. So I'm going to pray in just a moment, and we're going to break into communion. But if you're in that place where maybe you don't know Jesus, maybe you know of him and you've heard stories of him, but you have not committed yourself to him in your heart, now is the time. The word says simply that to let Jesus into your heart is just simply a matter of confessing and believing. Now remember, confession, when the Apostle Paul told that, to confess Jesus as Lord out loud would be a death sentence if the wrong person heard you. It's that level of confession. It's that level of decision. It's not anything you take lightly. But it's also no harder than that. So if you want to make that decision, you confess that here today. We have prayer team in the back who would be more than happy. They would be honored to be able to pray with you and help you through that decision you make. Maybe you're here and you just need to recommit. Maybe it's been a while. My salvation's secure, I believe in Jesus, but it's been a while since I really made him Lord of my life. And I feel like I've been, I've been getting beat up a lot lately. You can make that recommitting right now.
you can recommit to Jesus. And there's no better way to seal that than by taking Holy Communion together. So we have a couple different ways we do it here if you haven't been here before. At the crosses, we've got juice and bread and gluten-free crackers, okay? And you can serve yourself there. You can serve your family. You just dip the bread or cracker in the juice. Up here, Gabe and I would like to serve you. We have wine up here. Same thing, though, with bread and crackers. And you just dip it in there. But let's do this. Understanding what Jesus did for it and the true depth of what he literally saved us from. Let's do that with grateful and thankful hearts. Amen? All right, so church, the worship team will dismiss you after a couple songs, but let's feel free to move around and start taking communion together. If you need prayer again, the prayer team is in the back. Thank you.
you raise the broken. <laughs>